today. I'm Bob Carr, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to this ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr Jane Persian, Lecturer in History at the University of Southern Queensland. She's primarily an historian of displaced persons. The author of a new book, Beautiful Bolts, From Displaced Persons to New Australians, and co-chief investigator on an Australian Research Council discovery project entitled Displacement and Resettlement, Russian and Russian-speaking Jewish displaced persons arriving in Australia via the China route in the wake of the Second World War. Today we're going to be discussing the history and effects of the white Australia policy, Arthur Caldwell's immigration policies, and the immigration of displaced persons to Australia via China. Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you. Can we start by talking about a subject that I think every historian of immigration and Australia would have to address, and that is the white Australia policy. How should, how should we view it? How does it fit into what other white settler societies were doing around the world, Canada, the US, for example? Um, was there something special about the way Australia went, went about excluding Chinese and, and other Asians? What stands out about white Australia? Okay, so uh, for me, I'm predominantly a, a historian of mid-20th century uh, migration, and the white Australia policy is the background to that. So um, it's a white Australia policy to be more British than the British. It's not just... Um, anti-Asian or anti-Chinese, it's anti-everybody who's not British, really. Um, and this is where Corwell comes into it by completely changing that. Um, so the White Australia policy was really a series of restrictions. It's the fir first act of legislation brought in by the new parliament. Um, and it's really about controlling who can come into the country on a permanent basis, so who can settle into the country. It's not, for example, that there were no uh, Chinese people coming into Australia during the time of the White Australia policy, but they came in um, under temporary visas. So they weren't allowed to, you know, just move here and settle. And no cases of them getting extensions? There were, and uh, there were a few cases actually of really quiet naturalisations. Um, they weren't publicised. It, yeah, it wasn't quite as black and white as uh, an anti-Chinese policy. Um, the resident Chinese... Uh, community, I think uh, 32,000 in about 1901 uh, upon federation, um, didn't have any restrictions. They, were, they could go out of the country, they could come back into the country. They couldn't bring family members from China to Australia on a permanent basis, but they certainly could on a temporary basis, so up to five years. But uh, the restriction here is that we don't, uh, the Australian government doesn't want uh, people from various places on the earth, but this particularly affected the, the Chinese community, um, to view Australia as a settlement country, as a place that they could actually move and settle permanently and become Australians. So actually by my period, which is the post-Second post World War period, the Chinese community was down to about 12,000 people, and that was just natural attrition because they hadn't been replenished, they couldn't bring over you know, wives and, and children. Um, so the practical basis of that is, is uh, that Australia would become white but also it would become uh, British and that was part of creating a unified Australia, of having some sort of uh, national pr 
pride, I guess, in who Australia, who Australia wanted to be. And they wanted to be an outpost of the British Empire. They're happy with that and there's no declaration of independence by Australians are happy to be in the British Empire. That's exactly right, yeah. Was it, was it directed at, at non-British Europeans? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yes someone, it was. Um, but, but there was Italian migration in the 1920s, wasn't there? There were dribs and drabs yeah. of uh, migrants. Um, and so we do get uh, some Italians, some Greeks, uh, but they're not necessarily welcomed. They're not, there's definitely no mass migration program. So we have mass migration programs in the first half of the 20th century and they're all for British people to come to Australia. Um, some migrants do come in. Greeks are seen as uh, too dark, and Italians as Mediterraneans as too dark to be um, British. <laughs> and you know, um, some of them get in uh, because they have already have family connections in Australia, or other reasons. I mean, there were people coming in and out of Australia who weren't white and who weren't British during this period, but we just don't see the mass migrations that we see after the war. Did um, the dictation test play the crucial role in giving effect to white Australia, the famous or infamous dictation test? Yes, uh, insofar as that was the law that uh, anyone who didn't pass the dictation test could be prohibited from entry and from uh, permanent residency. Uh, and that was, interestingly enough, changed because it used to... Uh, originated as a dictation test in any European language and um, various Asian, Asian nations, I think predominantly Japan, didn't like the wording of that and so it became any language but in practice it remained uh, European languages. But really what we find as historians is that um, interviews or looking at people <laughs> was the main test. If you look Anglo or British enough, white enough to get into Australia, then that's fine. Um, it didn't really matter which passport you're travelling on. So if you're travelling on a British passport, um, unfortunately the British were more lax than Australia was. So they would let almost anybody, you know, become a British um, citizen. So it was more about looking at somebody. If you felt that they didn't pass the test, you didn't want them, then the dictation test was just a means of proving that legally. So you make them, you know, uh, pass a test in Gaelic or, or some sort of absurd language that uh, nobody will be expected to know. Arthur Caldwell becomes Minister for Immigration in the post-war government. And he does so after Australia has been traumatised by the fall of Singapore, the Japanese reaching Papua New Guinea, and Australia thinking it's got to do, it's got to boost its population. Otherwise, there'll be another attempt to take our continent from us by an Asian empire. What's the, what's the perspective Caldwell brought to this job? So I think Caldwell's a really interesting character, a very effective political leader. Um, he he took <laughs> up that slogan, which was a nineteen twenty slogan of populate or perish. So, as you said, we'd seen uh, what happened in the Second World War. Japan was um, the Asian nation. The main issue here is the population. So, as it had been throughout the 19th century, the millions of, of Asians who might want to come to Australia. Um, so, he used that populate or perish um, phrase and the 
Department of Immigration was set up and he became the first minister for immigration. So he was very interesting, his motivations. He, he had an American grandfather and he really liked the American, um, I guess, uh, more diverse population, not necessarily the non-white American population, but he could see the value in bringing in non-British Europeans. Okay, so it still looks white and assimilable, which is the main um, checking point in this post-war period. Assimilation is, is the be-all and end-all. But his big break was actually um, not only allowing non-British migrants into Australia, but actually going out and recruiting them. So he went to Europe, uh, his first overseas trip, and uh, met some Eastern Europeans, um, particularly from the Baltic states who were blonde and, and white and middle class. And he was very impressed. And so he set up that the immigration scheme, which then went on to dilute, I guess, the whiteness of the white Australia policy. So by the... The fifth, British whiteness. That's right, yeah. So we get by... Well, and also, I guess, the colour white that we get in yeah. the 50s and 60s um, Mediterranean migration schemes. The government's actually paying for these people to come over. So Greeks, Italians... Um, and, Maltese, and, don't and forget it, the Maltese. Uh, they they it, came here in very big and numbers. And it goes on, yeah. So I think um, it's by the end of the 60s that we have Lebanese migrants who are not even European, you know, but they, they somehow are still coming over uh, in government-sponsored schemes under a white Australia policy. So that was, that was his a big contribution. And yet, yet he remains absolutely emphatic and even cruel in his enforcement <laughs> of white Australia directed at Asians. Yes, yes. And this is his, unfortunately, has become his legacy, I think, a little bit. That's how he's remembered as that sort of intransigent, um, anachronistic, white Australian um, stalwart of the 60s and 70s. And by that stage... Um, that was very old hat, <laughs> and people were moving on. Um, and no, he he did uh, he did keep that up. I think. I mean, my personal argument about this would be that he'd actually changed the demography of Australia so much, and probably wasn't even realised at the time what he'd done. He really um, brought in multiculturalism eventually. You know, that's that's what happened uh, because of his demographic changes. And so for him, bringing in Asian people, Asian migrants, permanent migrants, um, was a step too far. That, that he, I guess, couldn't um, make peace with making that bigger change to the Australian population. And he went about it with, with some very crude rhetoric. He'd talk about uh, red-blooded yes. Australians. He'd talk about Asiatics. Oh, it gets and worse. It, does it? What else? <laughs> How much further did he well, go? Well, you know, he said you can you can have a black Australia or a white Australia, but you can't have a mongrel Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's also very famous for his two wongs don't make a white. Claims to be misquoted on that. I mean, why? I, as a practicing politician, I know that these things happen. No, well, his, his claim is that uh, that Hansard didn't put the capital letters in because he was talking about a Mr. Wong and the MP Mr. White. Yeah. I don't think that explanation is completely convincing because it's it's a really uh, it's a great little racist quip, isn't it? I mean, it's very memorable. Most people know that about Corbyn. Yeah, even that's, he, he that's the point of the joke. He was referring <laughs> to a Mr. Wong and a Mr. Exactly, White, exactly, exactly, and um, so, invoking the old quip. That's that's what made it uh, funny. 
Exactly. So he's in his autobiography, he he goes on for about three pages about how he was misquoted, and, but somehow doesn't really explain. And he he says, you know, I'm not racist, but then doesn't really say what he meant. <laughs> it's curious that he had friends in the Chinese community in Melbourne and is said to have learnt, taught himself, Mandarin. I, I've always found it, learning Mandarin is a pretty formidable task. I don't know how a practising politician back in the 1940s, I'm thinking there wouldn't have been many teaching aides around or um, pulled that one off. Yeah, and look, I haven't gone into it in too much detail, but I would probably take that with a pinch of salt because that, well, that was cited in, in the biography by Colm Kiernan, historian, um, and yet he got the name of the friend wrong. Um, so I'm not sure how deep that friendship was. Um, Colwell was very popular within lots of migrant communities and he took great delight in um, the gifts and you know, presents that he was, he was given. Um, he, look, to me, he seems like a really personable guy. <laughs> I'm sure that he was on, on, a, on a personal level uh, racist or, you know. He actually comes out uh, quite a few times and, and says, well, Chinese should be proud of being Chinese and Japanese should be proud of being Japanese and I'm proud of being British. So, you know, th there's a possibility that he, he had that sort of lower level personal uh, relationships with constituents. Um, but, but as far as having any sort of real sympathy or empathy, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that that really translates. Tell us about the, the specialty you've, you've acquired for yourself, and that is the stories of uh, Jewish displaced persons coming to Australia in the wake of the Second World War. Now, I've got in my mind the notion that, shockingly, they still encountered anti-Semitism. After 1945, after the revelations about Auschwitz, um, there was still a feeling in Australia that was um, somewhat hostile to Jewish immigration. There was. My research, I've, I've recently done some uh, work on the Jewish refugees who ended up in Shanghai during the Second World War and then came to Australia as, as humanitarian refugees. Um, and Corwell, it turns out, actually to be a champion of these people um, and he wanted to bring them all in. He was quite happy. He, um, he by that stage, had, had counted Jews among white, the white Europeans that he was happy to bring into Australia. Um, and yet, look, it seems to me that there was a lot of anti-Semitism uh, at lower levels of the Department of Immigration. So officials, uh, particularly our uh, consul, the Australian consul in Shanghai, um, and influenced by the British Embassy in Shanghai, who were fairly anti-Semitic, anti-Israel at that time, which complicates matters a little bit. Um, and their reception in Australia, we have the usual sort of rat bags, I guess. You know, you have you always have your sort of right-wing um, headlines in certain newspapers that are well-known for that sort of thing. Um, the RSL came out. Um, you know, a couple of very right-wing MPs um, put their anti-Semitic thoughts well, on left record. Wing, yeah, a left-wing <laughs> one too. I remember in an exhibition I saw years ago at the Jewish Museum in Sydney on this subject quoted Les Halen, who was a, a left-leaning Labour MP, an educated man, former editor of the Women's Weekly, mm. sitting in Parliament as the MP for Parks, but saying there are all sorts of undesirables in Shanghai wanting to come to Australia, including riffraff and uh, criminals and Jews. It's a, it's a, 
a remark that uh, mm. makes your blood freeze, especially coming so so hot on the heels of the the Holocaust, the revelations about the Holocaust. Yeah, so our my displaced persons who came from Europe and also the Russians who came via China, we ended up actually taking not very many Jews at all. And that was not because of Corwell, but it was because of this anti-Semitic um, strain within the community. And particularly with... Uh, officials like Les Halen who, are, who have some power within the Department of Immigration. But I came across a story uh, researching the Jewish um, refugees who are not Russian, they're European Jews um, who've escaped Hitler and ended up in Shanghai. Um, and they said that uh, in this famous ship, the Hualien, which came from uh, Shanghai, they arrived in Darwin first, sort of accidentally. There was a rickety ship and they ran out of food and water. But that would have been an extra trauma for them <laughs> to arrive in Darwin uh, in the 1940s. Yes. But, you know, the story is that, um, that the Darwin community, of whom there were no Jewish people, it was, you know, um, Australian, Australian people um, of British descent, uh, wouldn't let them pay for dinner and welcome them and were really, you know, quite welcoming, which is a story I'm that so I have heard before. <laughs> I'm so relieved that that was a positive story. When you started, I didn't know where you were going to take this. And I, I was bracing myself for a no, I revelation was, yeah. of a burst of racism. I was really quite happy to read that. Um, it's the only really positive... Uh, they also stopped in Cairns and Brisbane and uh, then in Sydney. I think the Jewish community in Brisbane also welcomed them. But the thing that stood out to me was that these weren't Jewish people, that they were Australians and they felt sorry for them. Mm. And there seemed to be that also that humanitarian um, aspect. And that was also Corwell. Corwell was very influenced by the Holocaust. And he really did have that humanitarian impulse, which was stymied. Yes, well, that's, that's a, a very happy story. But I do remember from that exhibition... At the, at the Jewish Museum in Sydney, the point being made that, that there was the bureaucracy turned down the intake of mm -hmm. Jewish refugees because they thought that to, to have an optimal number would test public tolerance. Yes, that's exactly would right. Would lead to a backlash. That's exactly right. So the, the DPs from Europe, we took 170,000 of those DPs and only 500 were Jewish. And uh, apparently we took in an equal number, so about 500 war criminals. Um, so, you know, we didn't cover ourselves with glory. Um, and the Russians and Russian Jewish people that came also through the IRO from China, um, they ended up in the Philippines for a little bit. And then we took some of them, um, very few were Jewish, and we actually screened for Jewishness. So we don't want Jewish people. And that was because of the backlash. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that leaves one very, very uneasy and and uh, squeamish yeah. after yeah. after the newsreel footage that Australia would have absorbed and the the accounts of war correspondents who'd been there at the liberation of uh, the uh, camps in the west, um, if not those in uh, in Eastern Europe. So, this, sorry, I'll just. I think this is a good story too that um, Corwell was so pro taking these Jewish refugees. And then the Hualien happened and, and all the outrage by various MPs and, and right-wing newspaper writers, editorials and that sort of thing. Um, and so the Australian uh, policy then became, no, they, they can go to Israel. Israel's just been created, they go to Israel. 
And the International Refugee Organisation, which is run by the United Nations, said, well, can the ships stop on the way in Australia so that they can take in food and water? And the Australian government said no. They had to go straight to so Israel. that was in 1940... <laughs> yeah, late 40s, yeah, 47, 48, yeah. That, that is very unhappy, a very unhappy story. Yes, but I think Corwell gets um, blamed for that, and I don't think actually unfairly. it was him. Unfairly, unfairly yeah. yeah. Any significance in the fact that they had arrived via China? Well, we've just started this project, um, and... We, we were all uh, migration historians or Soviet historians, so um, our uh, other project was looking at the European displaced persons. There aren't that many people who come via the China route, but it's interesting. And no, no one's looked at it, no historians have looked at it. So these are Russian people who haven't just travelled through China, they've lived in China yeah. for decades. Um, and we think, you know, there are there are questions really about um, whether any of the Russian Cossacks who were perhaps ethnically Chinese, Mongolian, uh, came in through that scheme. And we think actually that that may have been the case. But really um, the interesting thing is that we took these Ru Russian refugees because they were white. And... The chi many Chinese, hundreds of thousands of Chinese refugees were ignored by Australia, um, even though the British government was uh, directly interested, of course, um, governing Hong Kong at the time. So we had about 900,000 Chinese refugees on Hong Kong itself. Um, so we took a few thousand white ones... <laughs> Which is really where we are by the late 40s. There, there's no... Um... And what a shock it would be for <laughs> any of those fierce advocates of a white Australia, a non-Asian Australia, or as Arthur Caldwell would say, a non-Asiatic mm -hmm. Australia, to walk down a street in Sydney, Melbourne, any Australian city today and see the marked Asian presence. That's exactly right. And I think... That's the interesting thing about Corwell is that he did change the demography and he he opened the gate for that to happen. But by the stage that other people were starting to get on board with that, um, perhaps he'd been burnt by the Jewish experience when he really was, I think, a little bit of a voice in the wilderness, um, you know, asking for the Australian public to take the Jewish uh, refugees and, and Jewish displaced persons from Europe. Jane, I find it somewhat refreshing that... Um we're not being frog-marched by, hate to use the term, uh, political correctness here, but we can see that Arthur Caldwell, a fierce supporter of white Australia, of locking out Asians, still stretched Australian immigration practice in the 1940s and indeed created the circumstances in which white, white Australia could be peacefully and non-controversially abandoned in 1966. Yes, and I should just add in defence of Arthur Corwell that he also proposed a bill in the 40s um, for Chinese residents, if they'd been in Australia for longer than the, the temporary five years, um, that they would be allowed to reside in Australia, which which happened later on. Uh, it was defeated in the 40s, um, but it did happen... What, defeated within his own party? Yeah, yeah. So the did it get through Cabinet? Oh, I'm not sure. I think so. Um so we, we know about Corwell and the O'Keefe case, the famous O'Keefe case, where um, 
you know, Cornwall was, no, no, the Asians have to be sent back, you know, we're not taking mm. them. Um, and yet he was making those incremental steps uh, early on. Well, Jane, that's a, that's a somewhat generous, more nuanced <laughs> view of Arthur Augustus Caldwell and whatever aspect of his career you focus on. Um, he certainly figured in Australian history, the fact that you've explored it in connection with your study. Um, a commendation of your book, Beautiful Bolts from Displaced Persons to New Australians by Jane Persian. Jane, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Our next episode will feature Lee Wei, lecturer in international business at the University of Sydney's Business School. She will join ACRI's Deputy Director, Professor James Lawrenson, to discuss the sustainability of Chinese investment in Australia in the context of capital controls recently introduced by the Chinese government. Find out more about ACRI's research and events on our website, australiachinarelations.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.